You're listening to the Warden Alumni Executive Education Podcast. Well, today at the Warren Podcast, I'd like to introduce Alex Gramansky. Alex is an entrepreneur that has leveraged his background in private equity to grow companies he has been involved with. Currently, Alex is co-president of Crescendo Music Royalty Corporation and an advisor to the ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. And a little bit of background, Alex normally does a podcast for an alumni group. I've got the pleasure of uh, interviewing Alex, who's one of the top executive graduates from the GMP program from Wharton Business School. Alex, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. And I want to say thank you to you, Peter, as well, because you actually kickstarted these podcasts way at the beginning. And so I'm just grateful to have been able to take them over and continue on with what you had started here. And i uh, just happy to see them grow and for you to take this opportunity to come back here and to interview me so our listeners can get to, to know me a little bit, because I think that was asked by a few people in our in our cohort. Well, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, so, Alex, you have quite a background and uh, certainly in the music side, but I also know that you're involved with other ventures in real estate. I think you are also involved with some areas in the medical side as well. Um, what is, you know, so tell me a little bit about yourself and um, what you currently do and what you're involved with. Yeah, so you touched on a little bit of my background there. So it's essentially a finance and private equity background. But yeah, my career did have start in, in real estate, essentially doing some asset management on the real estate side um, while I was still in university. Um, and really just took some of those insights from real estate and and understanding of finance to essentially get into the private equity world, which then involved and got into um, oil and gas and renewable energy. And then also into, as you mentioned, uh, the healthcare sector, um, where I just helped uh, a company um, that I'm a co-founder of essentially develop and start an app um, that helps people uh, manage habits. And essentially what we're trying to do is prescribe habits to people on that side. So that's a fun little uh, side project as well. Um, but all my energy has been on the music royalty fund because when I went to Wharton, I really thought long and hard about you know what I wanted to do and where I wanted to spend my time with. And my business partner, Reese Terode, he actually came up with the idea of starting this music royalty fund um, because he said, you know what, we really need to get into an income class where there's passive income, where uh, revenue is going to be generated for the rest of our lifetime, and as a class, it's going to be around there forever. And you know what, it was his idea to get into into music um, because it kind of hit all those buckets. It was passive because you had streaming revenue with all these platforms like Apple, Spotify, Amazon popping up. Um, royalties, you know, are low maintenance. There's no there's no real overhead cost to any of that stuff. You know, real estate, on the other hand, does not same with oil and gas and same with renewable. There's factories and plants and tenants and all this stuff that you have to manage. And music has been around since people could talk and people are going to continue to listen to music. Um, for as long as I can foresee and intellectual property is one of the largest asset classes in the world so music has been very well protected and I think with advances of technology we're just going to see you know people being able to collect revenue from more places you know from around the world there's still one billion people around the world without reliable internet access so they're not really streaming music yet so I think you know it hit all the buckets of air and area I want to be involved in so that's where where I went into and then I met some amazing people at the ICM asset management in Calgary, Canada, where, where I lived. And we partnered with them to start the ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. And it's been a fun ride and I've been loving doing that. 
Well, that's so you mentioned one thing. It's like real estate, I'm sure, without the real estate taxes and without homeowners insurance and all that, right? Exactly. You nailed it. There, there's no, you know, property taxes on that side and you don't have to deal with insurance and fluctuation. And then if there ever is any damage, right, you don't have to deal with, with damage on that side either. Um, and the good thing is the music industry has been growing uh, significantly due to uh, streaming platforms just taking off and bringing on more users. And that's before they even started increasing prices, right? Like Spotify is essentially still $9.99 um, a month. And then you have all these developing countries where, you know, premium prices are much lower and places like India, where it's just taking off, uh, subscription prices are lower on that side. So they bring in less revenue. But, you know, once those countries pick up and, and start generating essentially more revenue and, and the consumer becomes more affluent and wealthy, there's going to be additional revenue on that side as well. Uh, so lots of upside over there. Do you normally uh, do you normally work with smaller artists or do you also work with larger um, artists or bands or things of that nature in the music side? Great question. So we um, don't necessarily work with a lot of them, but we try to have amazing relationships with whoever we're buying rights from. So we will find and uh, acquire rights from songwriters, producers, artists, labels, publishers. So whoever owns rights. And they'll have a right to the music royalty stream so that's who we'll buy from so we can buy rights from a producer um to an extremely large and famous artist like for example taylor swift because he would have produced a lot of her older songs or to someone like tim mcgraw we would have bought producer rights from somebody like that um but we can also buy rights to uh from, from other people that are from performed like you know dj Khaled or Nicki minaj from songwriters things like that so uh, we're able to get access um, to essentially large artists and well-known artists by buying rights from a lot of songwriters and producers as well, because the artists won't often want to sell when they're um, that big, or if they do, that ticket size might be slightly too big for our fund. And is it is it normally existing songs that they've written, or is it also tied into some future uh, revenue from new songs they might produce later on? Again, great question. Um, love where your head's at. So we buy existing songs so that we can uh, forecast them. Because one thing I like doing from a private equity and finance background is trying to forecast future cash flow. And a lot of that's based on historical data and historical trends and historical revenue and how much streaming revenue has been coming in, how much has been coming through downloads, how much has been coming through radio. So you can imagine radio, we kind of, you know, decay um, a lot versus streaming revenue, which has been on the uprise. And then we also look at, you know, what are the demographics? You know, do they have a lot of fans in their teens or a lot of fans in their 80s? Right. Um, so we, we take that into consideration. Uh, as well um but all the songs we essentially buy are at least two years old so they would have gone to the initial peak of you know being on the radio and being going through the, some of the touring um and they would have come off of the, the hype and lots of downloads actually still shockingly um which bring in more revenue than streaming so so we buy stuff that's at least two years old so that we don't have to try and forecast and we don't really um buy futures but sometimes there's futures included in a deal because you're a lot of times buying all their work. So some, one songwriter can, for example, have written 100 plus songs and maybe five, six of them, you know, make up the majority of the revenue and they're, you know, 10 years old. But he would have also written a few songs in the last few years. And we don't give them a lot of value, but they're a lot of times just thrown in because we're just buying all their rights. Do those same, do, and there's a couple of questions I've had on this or I have on this, which is really, this is intriguing. This is very, uh, this is really kind of cool stuff, Alex. Um so do you do you work with artists over and over again because of their historical interests if they have new music coming out? Do you find that happening? So there's a the band that's called The Midnight and we bought their older catalogs or older albums as you would 
call them, um, that are like five to six years old. And they've released a few new albums since, or a new album since. And we do keep relationships with managers and, and the bands um, because the idea for us is, you know, as those albums age, yes, we do want to, you know, acquire some of their albums as they age, as they start to become more predictable. And the specific deal where I mentioned Midnight, we actually only bought 50% of the rights for the older stuff. So we're also interested in buying the other 50% down the road. But initially, you know, when we did that deal, they wanted to, they saw the growth as well that they were having and they want to be vested, but they want some cash off the table um, so that they can make some purchases, whether it's homes or paying off debt or who knows, things for kids or savings. Um, and we like having a vested interest with bands as well. But yeah, we do continue to manage those relationships and try to uh, keep those intact so that, you know, that there's potential in the future. Because uh, unless we're buying from an estate, which we've also done, um, there you want to be in business, right, and build relationships long term. What's the, what's the size of the types of deals that you make uh, within the royalty, uh, music royalty uh, industry? Yeah, so most of the deals we focus on right now are acquisition size of between 2 million to 10 million. Um, and we have done that because we find there's less competition and uh, we get better value there um, for deals we're looking at. When you go into like the 50 million, $100 million deals, there's a lot, there's people, there's companies that get a lot cheaper cost of capital than we do. You know, people were boring at like two, three, 4%, right? Their cost of capital is maybe 5% with leverage. This has all changed recently, you know, due to interest rates going up. But the last few years, just you couldn't compete with, you know, pension funds cost of capital at three to four percent, so to speak. Um, and they were they were buying some of these big catalogs at um, one metric they use is like multiples based on the last 12 months or best last um, last three year average. So we just couldn't compete with that. And they were just paying a lot because they had such a low cost of capital. And with leverage, you can always kind of make that work. Um, but when it comes to lower, smaller deals, um, they're not as interested because it's a lot of diligence, a lot of upfront work. Like I said, you know, a catalog can be 100 plus songs easily. So you do want to go through all of that. Um, but that's where we've been focusing on. And we get better discounts, so to speak, but uh, of course, more work. How, how long have you been doing the music royalty uh, side of things? So Reese and I started it in 2017. So we've been, we're kind of going into our, our sixth year here. Um, right. So um, we've been doing that. And um, a lot of it was building up by just analyzing it. We initially took some of our own capital and started by buying some rights to some Shakira songs. And then we also bought rights to a much lesser known catalog called uh, the guy's name was Kyle Lucas, because we wanted to actually see what would the performance be like for a much lesser known catalog and for, you know, a much, uh, much more popular catalog. And we want to see, you know, how much variance really is there in those two? So we kind of, you know, did our own uh, tests, so to speak. And then we started to build some algorithms around that. And then we got a team of, of people that previously worked at Facebook, Uber, Snapchat, Amazon, to try and help us build some algorithms and put some, you know, financial numbers around all that stuff. Started to try and do some artificial intelligence work around that all by looking at a whole bunch of other things that we could look at. Realized that um, essentially radio was the best indicator for when it comes back testing because streaming has only been around for so many years. Like YouTube's only really grown up, uh, blown up since, you know, 2013. So looking at older catalogs and comparing them to newer ones wasn't really that accurate if you looked at just streaming. But if you looked at the first two years, kind of the radio curve, that's always kind of been, a, been around. So we've been looking at how does radio dictate in the first two years of a song's released, how it's going to perform in the future. So that's kind of one thing we've been looking at um, a lot and, and been, 
using to model kind of how we forecast songs are going to perform. So if a song is coming out that's three years old, we'll try to find songs that are, you know, five, 10, 20 years old and see how did the first two years of the release compare to each other. And that'll kind of give us an idea. How's that song going to perform going forward? That is fascinating. So another question I have for you is, so you've been around, like you've been doing this for about six years and now I, I, I hear you're saying the the strategy right now you have is between two and 10 million. Has it always been that kind of kind of investment from the beginning or has, is that part of the strategy that changed within your business model? So initially we were doing uh, like a hundred thousand to 5 million. So it was smaller um, because as we're just starting up, um, we, we were looking at smaller deals and we weren't exactly sure where to cast our net. And um, once you start adding like legal fees and things like that and, and diligence costs and, um, you know, we, we also have some commissions and things like that, that, that we pay. Um, we decided that, you know, we, we really should focus on some of those slightly larger deals. So we know we moved up from two to 10 million. Plus we were seeing a lot of deals that were still like outside of that $5 million bucket that we were really interested in. And as our fund has grown, we're also raising more capital. So it's easier for us to deploy. So we're an open-ended fund. And what that means is we essentially raise money every month and then, you know, we'll, we'll deploy it and, and, you know, closing a deal can take two to three months at a time. So, um, we're always trying to kind of manage how much money is coming in. You know, we don't want to be sitting on debt capital because we're essentially paying investors a return on that. Um, so a lot of what we do is try to manage, you know, um, when do we close a deal? How big does that deal have to be? So there's a few moving parts, but I've been involved with open-ended funds for over 10 years and, and same with people at the ICM asset management side. They've been doing that for much longer than I have, probably have been. So we're pretty uh, decent at allocating capital on that side and trying to figure out how much comes in every month. So, and so within the digital age, I'm curious, Alex, you've got YouTube, you've got um, Spotify. Um, now you have some other platforms that I'm sure you're looking to bring revenue in. How do you, you know, are there other, like, is there TikTok? Are you approaching some of these other newer platforms that are um, potential revenue gainers? And how do you go about that? Great question. So the music industry has been around, like I mentioned at the beginning, since people could really talk. So there's a lot of organizations that have been around for over 100 plus years. And some of them are not for profit, some of them are for profits. Um, and they essentially do a lot of the collecting for us. So that's already done. So when we look at stuff, it's already based on what's being collected. So we don't actually go out and collect there because um, if you think about how music had to evolve, you know, how does somebody from, you know, Canada as a songwriter collect revenue that's from Africa or that's from China or from Singapore or from Russia or from Uzbekistan and vice versa. How does a you know songwriter from Australia collect revenue from the United States? So the infrastructure for music has already largely been in place for many, many, many years. Um, so now you asked about, you know, collection of, of royalties from new streams. Now that doesn't however mean that revenue has been collected from all of those places in the past um, because Facebook and Snapchat, for example, are newer examples and TikTok of where now revenue is being collected because now music is being used in those places. Now they have to you know, make catch up payments because they haven't been paying royalties and as people insert songs into their TikTok videos or YouTube or Facebook videos, they're now making these lump sum payments. Uh, so we're seeing those lump sum payments come in and then we're seeing recurring revenue come in from all those places as well. So there's definitely more revenue sources coming on like one song, can easily have over 100 revenue sources. You know, you touched on a few of them. 
and being you know amazon snapchat TikTok, facebook um youtube right and then there's radio also from different radio stations around the world and and so there's a lot of revenue sources that we analyze but the big ones are spotify and amazon essentially and apple and you're saying they're well managed um they're well managed you get your royalty payments there's really no issue there's no legal issues you have to jump hurdles through no, there isn't. Uh, but that being said, you know, the industry kind of has accepted that probably 10 to 20 to 25%, you know, might be uncollected uh, right now. So is there issues in theory? Yes, because, you know, we understand there's some uncollected, but I think as you know, things like blockchain advance and artificial intelligence advances that can, you know, better identify, you know, when snippets of a song are being used. I think that's, again, just additional upside down the road that we don't really factor into it. But, you know, once you're getting your money from Spotify, like Spotify has got a down pact, Apple, Amazon, like all those companies kind of have a good idea of what's being played, especially when it's just streaming a song. It gets a little bit more complicated when people start mixing songs together and doing remixes and things like that. And just using like little short versions in a Facebook video or TikTok video. I'm assuming there's complications there, but all of that's uh, just just upside that is going to be great for investors. Um and, and is, so to speak, some of the things that we don't really model into it because it'd be very difficult how to, but I think it's it's part of the thesis of why I want to be in the space. So when somebody takes your song that you own, basically, and they use it on their website or they use it for marketing purposes and they're doing it individually or as a, as a company, you really don't get involved in going after those companies that may try to utilize your song. You know what I'm saying, correct? Yeah. So if, but so if you're using like a YouTube video, right, or something like this, and you post on your website, YouTube has licensing deals essentially with all the major publishers and companies that I I mentioned. So we get revenue from that, and YouTube essentially collects that revenue and then it remits it to whatever organization they remit it to us. So that that's already um pretty well done. But if you know you, you know, played a song in the background of this recording right now, we're not at this, and then posted that somewhere. We're not there yet. We're I'm going to be able to, you know, collect that revenue. Now, that being said, Spotify would on the back end be paying us, but it wouldn't be paying us, you know, if this was now a broadcast performance and people kept listening to this specific video over and over again. And so so we're not at that stage yet where that can be collected, but but pretty much like whenever you're in a mall or in a restaurant, like all that stuff get, gets collected and paid. Okay, gotcha. So within your career, Alex, what would you say is the most unique thing you've had to deal with? The most unique thing I've had to deal with um, is I'm going to say self-reflection and my mistakes that I've made along the way. And I think Wharton's been a great resource and tool in helping me figure out how do I learn from my mistakes at times when I didn't even know there were mistakes? How do I learn from decisions I've made when I didn't even know they were either bad or wrong decisions? And so the experience I've had at, at Wharton and the tools that I now use um, to you know, self-reflect, I think is, is really unique um, on that side. So I'm going to say my self-discovery and some of the things I've been involved with um, has been very unique to me, um, so to speak. Um, so it's been really on the personal development side and, and self-reflection side that have been very unique of me understanding my mind. Um, you know, trying to do less projection, trying to understand the minds of other people, so to speak, and um, realizing that everyone is really so different. And that's something that, you know, I could not have really imagined that people are so different in how they view the world and, and how they go about the world. So one of the most unique things for me, I would say, is is realizing how different I am from other people 
and how different other people are for me. And that's just been so clear to me, whether it comes to negotiation, whether it comes to deals, whether it comes to anything like that. So the human psychology and being involved with that has been the most unique thing I've had to deal with. Uh, would you would you characterize it in some cases of making sure you have hard, thick skin when you deal with other cultures, other people that may be a little bit different in a sense? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's about hard, thick skin. I think it's about just having this idea in my head now that, let's just say when triggered is a word that now goes around when, you know, I'm triggered or, or my emotions come up, recognizing that's because some sort of wound maybe I have um and and somebody might be really aggressive or assertive in a point or because of you know protection or safety or whatever they have and and they feel a certain way about that and and just trying to understand like you know everyone's coming from from their place of so to speak pain or hurt or or protection and, and wanting to make sure that you know they don't trust me and that they're not getting screwed over or something like that so what whenever people um are are bold and and aggressive i'd have to realize that you know that's not because maybe i did anything wrong and in some cases it might be um but then realizing that you know what there's something really important to them about this whether um it's just they really care about it or whether it's they don't trust me um uh it's it's just uh recognizing that that everyone is very different so i don't know if it's i don't know if it's um like you said bold or, or tough skin but um, me just not taking it so personal either, even if it's something maybe I did wrong, just reflecting and learning from it. Excellent. What was your, what would you say is your career path that got you to where you are today, Alex? My career path that got me to where I am today, I'm gonna best uh, explain in a story. And it actually started with me um, meeting Spencer Kuplin from the ICM asset management team at another company that I was an angel investor in and ICM had um, made angel investments in. And um, we were just sat in, or sitting next to each other or he was sitting behind me and we were just uh, talking before the investor presentation uh, was, happen was happening. And he mentioned to me what ICM was doing and I shared about what, what Reese and myself were doing with Crescendo. Um, and my understanding was that ICM had raised a lot of capital at that point and had done uh, partnerships with, with other people to expand to other areas. So Spencer then introduced me to a, a guy named David Vanka at ICM and I met with David again and shared more about what we're doing in the music space. And, and David has essentially been leading what we're doing in the music space um, for us and um, with the ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. He's been a great leader on that side um, that I've been learning from a lot as well. Um, and once uh, we struck that partnership with ICM, asset management, um, we started to essentially source more deals and look for more opportunities. And ICM has helped us raise a lot of capital. They have been doing a great job on doing them um, accounting and they have incredible analysts on that side as well. And they've been bringing on exempt market dealers and they've overall been an amazing partner that have helped us uh, so far raise uh, 50 million in capital. And right now we have no debt. So we're looking at taking on some debt down the road as well. Um, but it really comes down to, you know, meeting the right people at the right time and kind of having a little bit of a vision of what Reese and I wanted to do and with a music royalty fund and proving that out uh, early on um, with just buying some rights on our own and, and validating that business model and then finding somebody that believed in that thesis as well. So, so Alex, within the last six years, when you started in the music royalty side of it, 
what would you say were the key steps between the idea and the success and in between mm -hmm. where, what would you say was, and this is a loaded question. There's a few questions you have to answer. The difficult parts of it. And when you said to yourself, okay, it looks like we've got these things in place. So what are the toughest things you have to deal with yeah. uh, to start a company from an idea the way you, the way you did? So me and we started with proving out the concept, right? It started with buying with our own money, some Shakira rights and some um, Carl Lucas rights and seeing, you know, what would the return profile be on something that we did due diligence on, on deals we sourced on, you know, what were the return requirements? Because that's really what people care about. And that's also what ICM cared about, you know, how, how did this turn out when we actually did it on a super small scale? Um, so proof of concept uh, was, was where it started with those rights. And, um, and then making sure we had, you know, a partnership that we want to be involved with long-term. And that's where a great partner like ICM came into place that could help us um, with this. Because you can't do everything on your own. And one thing I've learned is you need incredible team members. And I'm sure Peter, you can attest to this as well, is, is there's too much to do if you want to grow a company to do things on your own. So having somebody that um, that we could go to and that, that, that could essentially not just support us, but being incredible partner uh, was really important to us and and David and and Stephen who's one of the in-house lawyers over there and and Spencer they've all been incredible um to work with so far and and the ICM team has had just a great track record in itself so so having them as, as partners and then also for us one thing we had to do is we then of course had to find a lot of deal folks one of the first questions ICM asked at the beginning was if we raise capital are you going to find enough deals for us to deploy it into so our answer was yes, because, you know, we'd already been looking at the space. We'd already been evaluating some deals. And like I mentioned, look, there's songwriters, there's producers, right? There's artists, there's bands, there's labels, there's publishers. There's, I think there's 60,000 songs a day being released on Spotify, right? So there's always new assets, so to speak, being released at an insane rate. And there's always people listening to music. So now you just have to figure out who's selling, right? But if there's always new assets coming on, there's always going to be supply. Um, so we've been able to find a lot of supply, like this year alone, we've evaluated over 600 million in deals. And I think we've done like 20 to 30 million in deals, right? So we're doing one-tenth of what we're seeing. And I like that ratio. I kind of like to do one out of 10 deals and we're roughly doing like one out of 10 deals. Um, and I mentioned all those deals are kind of like in the ballpark size that we want to do. So making sure you have deal flow, making sure you have great partners, making sure that you have a great partnership, you know, not that you, um, you know, want to get out of that partnership down the road if things go really well. I've definitely seen it where I've been involved in companies. The companies do really well. And all of a sudden people feel like the deal that they struck at the beginning that they agreed to is now unfair. Right. So um, I at least think that, you know, we, we have a really um, fair, fair deal in place with them. And we're all, so to speak, pulling in the same direction. Well, six years certainly does sound like you've had some success and you're enjoying it and you've got a great team. How big is your team? Um, great question. So because ICM itself manages, uh, assets in the real estate space and they have a venture fund, right? They have a lot of people that can play cross-functional roles that are, you know, supportive. So, um, I, I don't even know how to really answer that question specifically because then we also have in-house lawyers and we use external lawyers and we have a lot of advisors as well. And a lot of our advisors help source deals as well. Um, and then we also rely on like, you know, some consultants that are vested shares in our company um, that we go to, you know, for some valuation questions and things like that on specific things that are maybe very nuanced. Um, so 
you know, team is a great question, and I've talked about team a little bit, but but we pull and are very resourceful, I think, from a lot of different places. Um, so, you know, who, who immediately works on it? I'd say, you know, we have five people working on, on the immediate day-to-day stuff, but there's probably like 10 to 15 people that are, you know, in our um, wheelhouse that we leverage uh, on a infrequent basis being like, you know, once a month or once every two months, so to speak. Okay. Excellent. That's very, very interesting. Uh, and so if you were to think of some of the skills, like the mastering a skill within your field, what would you say you'd have to, you have to master for success? Yeah. So one thing I would have to master is knowing what I'm good at and knowing what I'm not good at. Um, and what I mean by that is so my business partner, Reese, like uh, he does a lot of our asset management stuff. Um, and I do a lot of our, our financial modeling um, and, and together just through the diligence, the early diligence process itself, um, um, realizing that, you know, I can, you know, put a model together, but then, you know, going through it with a team or a teammate, um, and listening to other people's perspectives and point of views, because one thing that's actually the most important and ultimately most important in what we do is we cannot overpay for an asset. Right. That's really what it comes down to. Our future and our returns are based on us not overpaying. If we overpay, we can never make that return. So essentially how we make those acquisitions is, I'm going to say, the most important part of the entire fund being successful. Right. If we find good deals and we negotiate good deals and we generate good returns long term, there's going to be more people that are going to be interested in investing. Right. Long term, we're going to continue to build a positive track record. Long term, we're going to attract more capital. Right. If we continue to do that. So the ultimately most important thing is to not overpay. So we have to make sure that when we do our diligence and we do our analysis, that we forecast the assets, you know, properly. Um, and then on top of that, try and figure out, you know, how much wiggle room there is um, from the seller to negotiate and then figure out, you know, what discount rate or RR we're trying to target. Um, and of course, also realize, you know, how much variance is there in our forecast. So we kind of do an expected and optimistic case. And then we also like wait each one. So we'll be like, okay, like in this specific scenario where it's a really old deal, you know, the catalog has been around for 15 years or the songs have been around 15 years. You know, we think our expected case, we'll give an 80% weighting and then we'll have an optimistic case and we might give it 20% weighting. But if it's like, let's say, you know, a newer catalog that's three or four years old, say, you know what, let's go 60% on our expected case, 40% our optimistic case, but our expected case might also be more um, conservative. So so it really comes down to understanding like variance analysis and then forecasting and things like that. So there's a lot involved in the early diligence stuff. And like I said, you know, for decaying radio at appropriate rates. So understanding where revenue streams are coming from. And the same is true for real estate or other industries, right? Understanding how secure is my revenue stream, right? If you look at real estate, hey, do I have a tenant like, like KPMG or Shell or, you know, some big conglomerate or Apple or Amazon in my building that's got a 20 year lease? Right. And then maybe, you know, I look for a 5% or 5 cap, right, as they're called in real estate. Or do I have some mom and pop shop that's on a one year lease, right? And next year, who knows if they're still going to be around or want rent reductions or who knows what. So you're going to want a higher return. So really understanding um, your cash flows and your revenue streams is one of the most important things I had to, I had to, so to speak, master. Well, that, it's interesting that you, um, you mentioned real estate again. So I, I would take it in your case, I'm sure there's auctions for the music industry. And I'm sure that's something you stay away from those types of, you know, where you, where, where you have a lot of buyers looking for sellers that are kind of auctioning their, their music out. Yeah, there is, 
there's a few auction places and we haven't bought anything for our fund from an auction. Um, and um, a, a few reasons, one, um, yeah, if, if proprietary opportunities are usually, you know, better value than, than auctions. Um, and as much as auctions um, try to give you as much data, like you don't get the same level of diligence. It's kind of like once you bid on it, like they have a standard legal agreement also, right, that you kind of have to live with versus, you know, things come up post letter of intent stage that lawyers get involved with, you know, where some assets or title of command aren't properly there, right? And 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 then we have to figure that out because eventually, you know, we might want to sell or we might want to exit, right? Um, so we have to make sure that we can resell those assets. So auctions have those downsides as well um, where you can't really negotiate the purchase and sale agreement that much. Um, so, so there's a few little issues with auctions in general in this space. Gotcha. What what would you say is some of the major or one major or two major obstacles you'd you had to overcome within your space? Um grow like because I mentioned there's always new revenue streams coming on, like let's say Snapchat and Facebook and TikTok being the most recent or Peloton, right? Trying to predict and understand um those revenue streams as well and, and how reoccurring they are and how lumpy they are because you know you'll see revenue coming in from facebook and there'll be like some descriptions and stuff like that along it but then trying to figure out you know this first lump sum payment like is this over the last three years over five years like trying to normalize essentially the revenue um is, is one thing that we're trying to deal with that's an obstacle um you know how much of that came in the last six months versus how much of that came over the last five years and you know exactly equivalent amount right usually you have more coming at the beginning and maybe less coming at the end, unless it's a really older song and actually you have more users on the platform now. So with Spotify, you're actually just seeing growth up and to the right, right? So as more users come on, um, you can actually argue that most of the revenues come in the more recent years than later years. So that's the interesting thing about music in general. Some people think, well, don't songs like die off and you know come down? Well, I think that's true in the early years, but later on, I think there's actually there's a lot of songs. We look at like how many songs are on playlists. So if you're on a hundred thousand playlists, and you know you're you're very you're very sticky, so to speak, and and more and more people will actually join those playlists, then people stop listening to them. So um, really trying to figure out you know what each revenue stream means is, is is probably one of the hardest things, and I think that's true for any private equity um or finance person is is how reliable is my revenue stream? How reliable is this tenant, right? And to some degree, look at each revenue stream as a tenant, right? If you really want to use that real estate analogy. Gotcha, yeah. And you mentioned Peloton. Did you, not, did you mention Peloton? Yeah, Peloton, yeah, exactly. We, we Peloton also, right? They use a lot of music in, in all of their videos, right? So um, so that's a revenue stream that's also, you know, been been growing. Okay. And then, so within those obstacles, obstacles, what what did you learn from overcoming your major obstacles? Oh, what I learned is, or what I learned is that, um, is you really have to understand your your cash flow, and that's really what Wharton Finance is all about, right? Is is understanding your future cash flows, right? It's that's really the most important thing. Is how much certainty do you have in them? Um, so that's really what I learned is is that that's really uh, one of the most important parts to underwriting a deal properly. And one thing I learned is, you know, from having made mistakes in the past that if you overpay, like there's really, it's really hard to come back from it. And music is actually, music industry has the luxury of you have an opportunity to come back from it, 
because if you have a certain song that's underperforming, you can try and pitch that deal. You can try and make a TikTok video for that deal. You can try to make that song go viral, right? So you can try and revitalize that deal, but it's very hard to turn songs and make them like lucrative and attractive. And it's and it's hard to make a viral video, right? Some people are really good at it. Some companies specialize in it. And that's one thing I've been talking to my team about as well. Lately, you know, some companies just know how to make viral videos, right? Um, and I'm like, what does it look like in, in the music industry? How do you how do you do that for? But right now for us, it's only focusing on um, essentially acquiring things. And if there is something that happens to underperform, then let's put our minds to it. And how do we make this, you know, song go viral or revitalize it or something like that? And, you know, get it onto more playlists or editorial playlists that already have a lot of followers, right? How do we pitch it to some of those people that have, you know, a million plus people on a playlist? And get them to put it on that playlist so so that's kind of our, our thoughts around um how do we overcome how do we overcome things when maybe they don't go great are you are you looking at shifting that strategy a little bit so that you're trying to revive or putting the this the music you own in different platforms to get it out there um no because it takes a lot of active management which kind of goes away takes away from the original thesis i would rather just evaluate deals buy good catalogs at good prices and let the market and the thesis play out. The rest requires, you know, putting your brain and your creative mind to, so to speak, work. And I'm gonna say then hoping and praying that you know people like what you put out there. And um, and and that's a lot of guesswork, right? Um, and I know there's a this, there's a science to the art um, that is people's jobs. It, it's just not you know something I'm great at. So maybe that's also why I want to stay away from it. That's excellent. Thanks for that. Alex, I would ask, um, what would you say is one of your biggest successes? One of my biggest successes would probably be my personal transformation and how I went from probably seeing the world in a much more cynical and, and critical place um, to now viewing it in a much more positive and, and beautiful place while still recognizing that not great things happen in the world which would have though led to my actual big success. And that would be getting married to my wife um, because I really had a stigma around marriage and relationships. And she really opened my eyes to how great marriage and relationships can be, which then tied into other great relationships I ended up having in business. So that would be my greatest success is being married to my wife and her having agreed to that and me having transformed myself into becoming a person that I want to be a good husband a good father and because in the past I probably had an outlook on life that would have resembled um probably not having been as great of a father or partner in the past and then on the business or financial side I've had angel investments go from where I had a three million dollar valuation to over a hundred million dollar valuation in one instance or in another instance I had one go from um I think it was a three and a half million dollar valuation to over a billion to two billion dollar valuation and that one is about to go public so i don't know exactly where it'll go public and they're doing that virus takeover but those would be my um, biggest successes on the personal and financial side so 20 years ago let's go back some 20 years ago what's the biggest difference you would say 20 years ago how you were to today so 20 years ago i wanted to be a professional soccer player and i was gung set on being a professional soccer player and that did not turn out um, the way I thought or where I wanted to, even though I grew up in Germany and moved to Canada. Even when I moved to Canada, you know, that dream kind of got crushed for a while because Germany was the place for soccer. 
I remember being on the plane flying to Canada, being like, you know, like, is my dream for soccer kind of done? Talking to my dad about it. Just say, he, didn't, he didn't say it was done, but my takeaway it was. But then, you know, a few years go by and, and you know, I'm doing really well playing here, um, for provincial team and city teams and stuff like this. And and part of me kind of, I guess, still had the hopes of, of playing professional soccer. And then I, I played over in, in England and Germany and Scotland. I again, had the opportunity to try out over there. And then um, I, I got homesick. I didn't really have the, I'm going to be honest, like the, the drive or the desire to, to continue to play over there. Um I'm going to say my, my life was probably too easy in Canada and I didn't like, you know, not being at school. I wasn't really in school and online schooling wasn't really that big back then either. Right. So I was a little bit in limbo. Um, but then I went to Vancouver, tried to play over there again and um, and didn't really like it. But then I ended up going to university in Vancouver um, and um, played soccer there on that team. But Again, nothing really on the soccer side came to fruition the way I had initially thought. I only wanted to be kind of the best and greatest in the world at, at soccer. And and when that didn't come to fruition, I, I kind of said, you know, what else can I do? Um, so my life is very different from thinking I was going to be a professional athlete to to now, you know, being in the business world and navigating that. But I think some of the leadership skills that I had taken on as, you know, captain of my team and things like that, some of those things, you know, I, I'm still probably outspoken. Um, probably not as reserved as I should be. Um, so those things are probably still intact, but, but being involved in business, um, in the manner that I am, I just wouldn't have assumed that 20 years ago, despite my dad having been in business and things like that, but that's the, probably the biggest difference. So what, what, what moved you into the business? You could have gone into a lot of different things, but what moved you into the business side? During that transition, was it something that happened at school? Um, not something that happened at school. Um, I'd say I, I was working while I was in university. Um, and then work just kind of took over. And work was, to some degree, somewhat glamorous as well to me. Because I got to travel for work. I got to, place, to go to places like Singapore and Malaysia. And got to even try to travel to places like Germany and, and other places around the world. Um, so... I'm going to say work became glamorous and I liked it and I enjoyed it. So um, that's kind of what I ended up doing on that side of things. Um, so nothing really specific, but I didn't, because I like doing work, I didn't really, you know, have the capacity or, or desire to wanted to continue to, you know, do university or continue kind of studying things like that. Um, so those are some of the things that um, had me going, but then, um, once I kind of got my head on my shoulder, so to speak, later on, had some business experience, I realized how important education was again. So I essentially went back and and um, went back to university and, and continued to do executive education in all sorts of places. And, and then eventually went and did the Wharton Executive Education Program. But I've done executive education and continued continuous executive, uh, wow, continuous executive education um, programs um for many many years now and, and i've been loving this continuous learning path well we we you know we love uh having you as part of our alumni group you've been fantastic i'm going to ask you another question one more last question and that really is within the business side you know you've got operational efficiencies you've got strategy you've got so many other areas of the business side that we've learned at warren business school is there one or two of those learning journeys that you've received that you would you would say really um 
made a difference in uh, in your business? I would say they all have. Um, and and I was floored by how much I learned from Wharton. And I now understand why they want you when you do an MBA to have business experience. And I thought like, like how ridiculous. But when I was in university, you know, my brain had nothing, no experiences to anchor the learnings to. And when I was at Wharton, I had years of business experience. And every word that came out of the professor's mouths or teacher's mouths, I'm like, oh, I could have used this here. Oh, this is an anchor for this. Oh, like I could have, you know, made this decision differently or with different information or even the same decision, but understood it better. And um, Wharton gave me so much great information. And, and I think having business experience, you know, from startup experience to to managing funds to you know being involved in the legal side and diligence side and financial side and 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 all, all sorts of things um there's there's just even to negotiations right there, there's there's so much knowledge out there um but but if you don't have something to anchor it to it's just information and information is really hard to retain um so I, there was lots of operational learnings, lots of strategic learnings that, that I took away from Wharton, lots of leadership learnings I took away from Wharton um, that all made a, say, a major difference and impact into, into who I was and who I kind of became as well. Well, Alex, uh, you are you're a very successful guy, um, hundreds of millions of dollars, amazing companies that you're a part of. Um, you're one of the top Wharton graduates uh, from the executive education program. And uh, one thing I would say is um, you, you're generally a, a just an amazing guy. And uh, I'm very happy we got a chance to do this interview with you, Alex. Uh, your spiritual side is amazing, too, that I don't know. I just know it's an important part of your life. And uh, we didn't touch upon that, but uh, but uh, this was just fantastic. So uh, this is a real honor for me. Well, thank you for taking the time to interview me today. And hopefully our listeners will find some value as to knowing who's on the other side of, of, you know, hosting these podcasts. So thank you. Yep. Thank you, Alex.